You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KABC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host. And we have a guest, uh, Bill Snape, uh, American University College of Law, adjunct professor there, also senior counsel for the Center for Biological Diversity. He, Bill also has a podcast, uh, Hot Air, in which he discusses environmental issues. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. Well, Bill, uh, why don't you just kind of talk to us a little bit about what the what kind of work you're doing over at the Center for Biological Diversity? Well, the Center for Biological Diversity um, is a growing environmental advocacy group. We uh, have eight or nine different programs, endangered species, climate change, food, toxics, you name it. I'm missing a few in that litany. And I, I think the thing about the center that makes it most unique and why I've so enjoyed working there the last 15 years is that it mixes law, science, and communications in a very direct and unique way. And I'm a lawyer, so uh, I both file lawsuits and do a little bit of policy work in Washington, D.C. But we have scientists and lawyers who don't even come close to Washington, D.C. unless they want to. Uh, we have folks that work on programs and issues all over the country, in fact, all over the world now. Uh, and so the center is, I would say, a, a hard hitting but creative advocacy group um, that cares about the big critters and the little critters. And um, it's a really cool place to work. We do good stuff. And I say that because I'm sort of one of the old folks now. A lot of the new generation has come and it's uh, it's it's a it's a fun place to work. Well, that's good to hear. Well, tell us a little bit about the lawsuits that you filed recently and, and what are you working on there? Well, so the petition where we met each other uh, was a petition to the General Services Administration, an agency not many people have heard of if they even focus on the federal government. The General Services Administration is sort of like the agency of agencies. That's that for non-Department of Defense buildings is in charge of all federal buildings. That's the GSA. The General Services Administration buys all the motor vehicles that federal employees use, again, except those that are out of the Department of Defense. So it has huge procurement powers, powers to spend on behalf of the federal government that we believe could be far better focused and spent on clean, renewable energy. And so we petitioned the agency to overhaul their regulations. Um, and we're hopeful that the Biden GSA will, will go in the right direction. And, and if they don't go enough in the right direction, we'll sue them. But the way that this particular petition process works, they'll have a few months to consider it and, and there won't be any litigation until 22 at the least. My other litigation is, is really across the board. I do some grizzly bear work. I've done a lot of work under the Freedom of Information Act, particularly when we were battling the Trump administration, but frankly, all administrations need sunshine. So my particular portfolio at the at the center is is sort of varied. Okay, well, one of the things that uh, you had been quoted as saying was that the net zero target is too weak. Uh, the twenty the Biden twenty fifty net zero target is too weak and undermines the GSA's own twenty twenty five pledge. Uh, can you comment on that for us? Yeah. So Earth Day this year. Uh, then acting administrator, now deputy administrator, a woman by the name of Katie Kale, I have not met Katie, announced on Earth Day this year on behalf of the administration, still on GSA's website, that they were going to go to clean, renewable, 100% energy, renewable energy by 2025. 
And so we took them at their word. And that was what our petition incorporated as a, as a target date. Well, lo and behold, a few days after our petition, when the Biden administration announces this new executive order, all the dates had been pushed back. Um, the 2025 date, I think, is now 2035. They had a lot of dates that they threw on the paper. And so we called them out on it, not because they're trying. We're happy they're trying. And we recognize this is not easy to do. But there was no real reason why they backtracked at least a decade or two on their targets. And I think more problematic, and I think this is perhaps the more serious issue, and I think we're seeing it in the U.S. Senate right now, the power of the fossil fuel industries. What does net zero even mean? Uh, Carbon neutrality, another one of these buzzwords, which really means, yeah, we're going to try to do as much renewable energy, clean renewable energy as we can. But if we buy some offsets with natural gas or if we burn a little coal, but we do some good things over here with the forest, we'll call it net zero and we'll all be happy. Right. And from our perspective, no, we will not be happy. We would like to ramp down the fossil fuel use now, not through gimmicks like net zero, which is really allowing fossil fuels to continue to be burned under various uh, bank mitigation uh, uh, regimes, none of which have proven to work, I might add. Well, you know, let's get into that a little bit more because this is an area that I think uh, is hidden a lot from the public view, which is uh, bank mitigation. And and explain that uh, to our listeners a bit so that uh, they can understand it and I can understand a little bit better as well. Well, it happens in a couple of contexts, this idea of mitigation. And in some contexts, it's good. It's the idea of, well, we're going to do something now that's going to harm a species or harm the climate or whatever the environmental amenity is, but we promise we'll do something over there to make it better. Sometimes in some situations, that might be appropriate, particularly at a smaller scale. In the context of climate, and I should just say before I start this, that all throughout high school, college, law school, I was sort of trained, you know, the markets work and, you know, it's got to be efficient. But when I started looking at mitigation, first with wildlife and now with regard to climate pollutants, what it really ends up meaning is, yes, we're going to allow you ExxonMobil and Chevron and all the other oil and gas industry players to essentially continue as business as usual, because we don't really want to disrupt that. And if you make a move to clean renewable energy, and if indeed you do other things that offset your use of fossil fuels, we'll give you prizes or awards or net zero labels. And I'm not saying that's exactly what the Biden net zero plan is. I, I, I think the Biden net zero plan it does have some good faith in it, but a lot of it is we don't want to disturb the status quo. We want to continue as is. So as we continue as is, we're going to plant a forest over here, throw a couple of renewable vehicles out over there and call it somehow, you know, a win-win for all. And, and that's, it's just bogus. And I think the net zero issue is bogus because I think we really need to tangibly talk about how, when, and at what speed we're ramping down our use of fossil fuels. That it is, it is uh, carbon dioxide and methane, a little bit of nitrous oxide that are driving the climate catastrophe that we have. We've got to stop using those substances that cause that pollution. It's really quite simple. Well, in terms of, uh, walk us through an example, in terms of say planting a forest, is there a specific guideline which says, hey, if you plant X amount of forest, you will mitigate X amount of CO2 or or, uh, emissions 
such that you can continue to emit uh, a certain amount of uh, pollutants. Is there a formula that the federal government has for this? Well, I'm sure someone at the fire service might have a formula, but I can tell you right off the bat that the formula is, you know, BS in and BS out. The, the issue you just identified is what has bedeviled forest conservation at the global scale for years because we, we don't live in a static system. So the best way to think about forest protection is to protect the old growth, protect the forests and the trees that are old. That's usually a good starting point. But forests, as we've seen in the United States, Australia, other places, they, they sometimes uh, uh, catch on fire. Sometimes those fires are actually positive for the ecosystem. So we don't really actually have a mathematical system that anyone relies upon to talk about massive scale forest or reforestation to allow the type of fossil fuel pollution that we allow. On some smaller scales, it might be possible. And I don't want to throw all mitigation and all those types of mechanisms out the door. I think that would be foolish. But to base the entire national climate system on that, that style of mitigation where we don't really have to ramp down the fossil fuels, we can just sort of ramp down the fossil fuels if we add a couple of forests or reforests, it doesn't add up mathematically. And it's been shown in other contexts to never work. So tell us, uh, there there is a certain amount of uh, these banks that exist out there that uh, that give credits to people who are polluting if they uh, kind of buy into these mitigation efforts. And who who's regulating those? And and uh, are they, you know, are they uh, doomed, as you said, to to failure or or how could they work uh, going forward? Well, I think eventually the way it all has to work is that the, the market on some level needs to value clean renewable energy, which I think with regard to solar and wind and battery technologies, that's happening. You're seeing economic returns on those. But I, I think the larger issue with that is that the, the who's regulating them are, are the, the stock interests themselves, the real the, the, the exchanges, the stock exchanges. We've seen that with carbon markets. We've seen that with agricultural futures and commodities. And that those are not good regulatory entities to be monitoring the type of environmental compliance that we're talking about with these credits. It leads to the abuses we've seen in Europe. Well, I guess uh, in terms of because I've seen a little bit about these mitigation efforts and, and banks, mitigation banks, and I assume there has to be some regulation that says to uh to the to the bank, how how do they get these credits and who's giving them these credits and and how can they sell them? Internationally, it's done a little bit by the Paris Accord and the United Nations, but there is no real effective regulatory force to look at that multinationally. Okay, so so in terms of uh, I, I saw a, a documentary on this and they had uh, a certain insect that they were trying to protect here, I believe in California, and they were giving credits to a, a company that bought some land that protected the insect. And then then they sold those credits to a different uh, company. And uh, so, you know, there was a question as to whether or not that bank that was selling these credits is somehow regulated uh, such that uh, there's some oversight to to this process. We can pick that up after the break, perhaps. 
Okay. Well, uh, you're listening to KABC 790. This is Matt Mattern, host of Unite and Heal America, and we're speaking to uh, Bill Snape. And we'll be right back after the break. You're listening to Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Mattern, your host on KBC 790. We've got Bill Snape, who's senior counsel for the Center for Biological Diversity. And Bill, we were just talking about these mitigation banks. And uh, it's my understanding that we don't have mitigation banks for carbon um, in the U.S., but uh, we have them for endangered species. Um, can you explain to us why... Um, the we don't have that for carbon markets currently in the U.S. And so we? it's a really good question, and I'll try to make it as simple as possible. To state the obvious right from the get-go, uh, species, bugs, birds, bears are a lot different than carbon, which is a chemical matter. So in the species context, because of the U.S. Endangered Species Act, which actually does have some teeth and actually can and does protect species, uh, entities that want to harm endangered species habitats sometimes can convince the federal authority, usually the Fish and Wildlife Service, that they can destroy some endangered species habitat there because they're going to protect it over there and it's going to be a net benefit. And we have fights all the time about that. But at least when those fights occur, the fight is the scientific standard of conservation of a species. And there are legal cases and re regulations that define whether that mitigation is good enough or not. In the carbon context, because at least at the United States domestic level, we don't really regulate greenhouse gases. We, we regulate some air pollution that is also climate pollution, but we don't really say that you can't pollute carbon or methane anymore. We don't really, we don't have any numeric limits. Therefore, the markets for the large, for the most part, that have taken place in the United States have been because the states have taken some baby steps. And usually those markets are voluntary. Well, all markets are voluntary, but based upon markets happening where carbon really is regulated, like Europe. Most of the most vibrant greenhouse markets are happening outside of the United States precisely because the United States does not really regulate the underlying greenhouse pollutants the way other entities do. That's my best explanation as to the differences and similarities. So uh, are there any things, uh, are, there, are there any uh, bills on the horizon that are being uh, going through Congress that, that may create any kind of limits on the amount of uh, emissions that, that the whole economy can uh, emit or, or certain, um, certain types of pollutants such as methane or are we still at kind of the wild, wild west where you can pollute as much as you want? Kind of We're a little bit in the wild, wild west. That's another good question. And I think your question assumes that Congress can do much of anything. And I think over at least this century, we're now 21 years in, Congress has had grave difficulty agreeing on much of anything. And in fact, the fact that we got that recent infrastructure bill uh, that was actually bipartisan with a handful of Republicans was very significant. That was a lot of money that was put into the economy. And obviously the Build Back Better Act would put even more money. And I we support the Build Back Better Act that that, that should occur. But at the that, but that's just that's just throwing money at it from the regulatory point of view in terms of saying that's legal, that's not illegal, that's good, that's bad. I do not see Congress acting on climate. I am 
skeptical, certainly not this Congress. And there'd have to be a huge electoral revolution in 2022 so that we didn't have, you know, the Joe Manchin situation where one or two Democratic senators can block everything because Democrats don't have the hell. You know, it's a 50 50 tie in the Senate right now, not even thinking about the filibuster. So the answer, therefore, is not Congress, except to throw money at it. It's with the Biden administration, the Biden administration at the Department of Interior and at EPA have the legal powers already through the Clean Air Act and through other laws to institute the type of clean, renewable energy system that we need. It is within President Biden's authority to do and his agencies. And I think that's going to be the real historic question of his presidency. Will he grasp the moment or not? He's begun to grasp it. I think it's too early to say he hasn't grasped it, but you can see evidence that he's grasping it, but his handle's getting a little loose sometimes because he's getting hammered by the fossil fuel interests. You know, anytime the price of gas goes up a penny, the Republicans are crying foul, blame it on greenhouse regulation. Even though that's BS, that line plays in Peoria. So Biden will have to, he'll have to be masterful as he does this. Well, how uh, how would he do it under the Clean Air Act or, or through the EPA to institute the types of changes that you're, uh, you, you think would be best for the environment? Great question again. And it's actually quite simple. Recall, and I think you probably do vaguely remember this, that way back when the Clean Air Act was passed in, in the early 1970s, we had problems with lead. We had problems with carbon monoxide. We had problems with uh, uh, smog, which is a combination of nitrous and sulfur oxides. Well, we established to get rid of those clean air problems in the 70s, something under the Clean Air Act, this is, I'm going to wonk out on you now, but it's called a National Ambient Air Quality Standard, N-A-A-Q-S. In clean air nerd world, we call that NACS, N-A-A-Q-S. This NACS system sets science-based standards on how much is too much to pollute of these air pollutants. We did it with lead. We did it with carbon monoxide. We did it with the, uh, the sulfur dioxides and the nitrous dioxides. Now it's time to do it with the greenhouse pollutants. That is the most logical program to reduce these pollutants. And the reason it hasn't happened yet, well, Trump administration didn't do anything positive in this regard. And the Obama administration wimped out a little bit. They went through another provision of the Clean Air Act that allowed this economic cost benefit, blah, 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 the clean power plan. Really, the clean power plan was a net zero plan. It was a way to, to begin the process of clean renewable energy, but continue business as usual. A NAC standard, a standard where we actually created a public health standard for how much greenhouse pollution is too much, would have the real impact of reducing that pollution. And the president could start that process tomorrow with EPA if he wanted to. And how long would that process take, given that, uh, you know, we have a lot of regulatory hurdles that uh, need to be jumped through in order to have one of those regulations become kind of the law of the land, correct? Well, for any rule, you need to have a public notice and comment so the public can participate in that rule. It would take a few years so that there was an intelligent public proposal, a comment period, and then a finalization in a way that really represents our democratic, small d democratic ways. But it could be done before the Biden uh, administration. The first uh, term is over quite easily if they started right now. Well, I guess that's the uh, the sixty four thousand dollar question is uh, when are they going to start? Because time's running. They've already been in office for almost a year. 
and they haven't haven't gotten the process going have have they even done kind of the uh, legwork on the front end to your knowledge to uh to make this proposal no i don't think they have on this yet and and i think that's why our rhetoric got a little bit more heated with their with their government procurement proposal by the general services administration they here they are setting goals as far out as 2045 2050 We've already been in office a year and our line was you got to stop talking and start doing. So I agree with you. This first year has been slow. They have had some other big battles they've had to battle. There was a lot of detritus in the system left by the Trump agencies. Really, it did take a while to clean that up. But I agree with the premise of your question. It is time to act. I think we are getting impatient. And 2022 is going to be a huge year. They've got to hit the ground running in January. And there's some evidence that they may do that. The infrastructure bill, again, did provide the good agencies with some resources to to begin doing some of this stuff. But it's a lot of work. Well, basically, I I think that uh, a way that somebody said it to me and it kind of uh, resonated, which was in the wrong way, which was essentially we don't have the right to clean air or clean water in the United States. We have the right for somewhat polluted air and water based upon the Clean Air Act as it exists. So there is a right for industry to pollute and put chemicals into our air and water up to certain levels. So we don't have a right to really have pure air. We have a right to get somewhat polluted air. Is that a fair statement or is that a misstatement? I'm going to put on my Center for Biological Diversity C4 hat, our political action hat, say, look at what the Republicans have done on health care. They they don't think health care is a right. So, uh, yes, I think the Republicans have just taken that. Unless you're a fetus, they don't care about what you're drinking and breathing and 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 imbibing it 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 really is how you described it and it's why we don't have universal health care the, there is a portion of this society that simply doesn't appear to care and it is problematic I well think it's, it's still it's a, a minority but i think it's enough of a, a that minority is loud enough that that's why biden needs to be careful in how he frames this and i i i think his emphasis on clean, renewable energy being an economic boon, I think, is a winning message for him. And when he talks in those ways, he does better than when he becomes an apologizer for the fossil fuel industry, which he does sometimes by accident. Well, I think that it is something that needs to be framed in that way, or at least for me, that it resonated for me that we we have air and water that is being polluted and uh, there isn't a right to clean air and clean water in the United States. Essentially, I don't think it's being communicated clearly enough to the American public. You are getting polluted air and polluted water, and it is the law that that industries are allowed to do this, and we have to make this change or else you're going to be breathing this stuff in and people get sick, people die from this. Uh, isn't a good time to change the system. But uh, I would love we'll be, to pick up on that at the break. After the we'll, break. we'll be talking about this after the break. Uh, you're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, and we're talking to Bill Snape, and we'll be back in just one minute.
You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. Guest today is uh, Bill Snape, Senior Counsel for the Center for Biological Diversity. And Pete, we were talking about just before the break, uh, a, a number of different things, but I kind of wanted to flip to where we we were talking about the, the Clean Air Act and the EPA making some changes that could allow uh, the Biden administration to enforce standards for uh, carbon and methane and, and other uh, pollutants such similar to the lead, sulfur and um, carbon monoxide that had previously done been done under the EPA. And um, I, I was kind of hearkening back to uh, uh, to Pete McCluskey, who is a former congressman, a Republican congressman out here in California who had authored the Endangered Species Act back in the early 70s and how far we've come from that place in certainly from the Republican side of the spectrum and uh, some of the citizen suit provisions that are in the law that that allow uh, lawsuits to be brought by citizens to enforce these provisions. And certainly as an attorney, I recognize the value of that because a lot of times agencies just sit on their hands and they really don't they don't regulate the industries they're supposed to be regulating. So it's it's really it it falls upon the hands of uh, attorneys outside the government to enforce these provisions. Uh, What do you think uh, should be should be done in that respect uh, if we're going to revamp the Clean Air Act uh, to. uh, to include these other pollutants and other uh, sources of greenhouse gases? Well, that's a big and great question. And and I think you have to go back to when these statutes, the the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, and many others, all passed in the early 70s. And Congress had some wisdom about it back then 50 years ago, where it knew that these standards would be sometimes tough, that agencies and individuals would sometimes be tempted to skirt them. And so they very purposely put into these statutes the citizen supervisions that you're mentioning. And these citizen supervisions waive sovereign immunity that the federal government would otherwise have. Congress could say these agencies can never be sued. And that would be constitutional. But Congress said, no, we want these public attorneys general, these private people, to make sure the law is being enforced. And Some of our greatest environmental victories, Massachusetts versus EPA, where the Supreme Court finally acknowledged uh, that the climate change was an issue was because of a petition and a citizen supervision. So we wouldn't have half of what we have in our country on the ground with real live protections had not real people, normal people, real citizens gone out and filed suit and protected those things. And so it is a rich tradition in this country and not shockingly. The Republican Party hates it now. The Republican Party has become a shill for big industry and big church, uh, depending upon the time of the day. And it it is a shame. And and it's deeper than Pete McCluskey. And we used to have people like John Chafee and uh, Sherry Bowler just a few decades ago. Like very there aren't any Republicans like that anymore. And uh, instead, we're arguing, you know, about things like January 6th. Do we still have a democracy or not? But it, it is it's it is problematic. And it these these civil rights issues, these democratization issues are really touching environmental governance now for the first time in my adult life. I can see how I perhaps took them all for granted as a young lawyer. 
Well, waiving sovereign immunity for those out there who are not lawyers is a big deal. And essentially, the government has the ability to say, you can't sue us because we're the federal government. And for the federal government to say, we're bringing that that wall down, you can sue us is an enormously important thing. And I think it's what it really allows is uh, for citizens to be challenging the federal government as to the way they're doing business. I mean, if there's not if you're an anti big government person or if you're an anti you're thinking that the government has too much power, then waiving sovereign immunity is the way I think both left and right should say this is a good thing. We want our government to be more accountable. Having sovereign immunity for everything basically uh, insulates the government from any kind of wrongdoing. They can do whatever they want, and we as citizens can't get at them. And that, to me, is wrong. I mean, that's that's putting the government behind a wall that, that we can't penetrate and we can't question uh, their conduct. I couldn't agree more. That was I couldn't say it any better. And really, the words I would use, it's participatory democracy. It's more than just voting. It's taking action that the government is authorizing you to take because you're going to make the process better. Um, I, I you know, The Freedom of Information Act, which I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago or in another section, it's one of the few statutes and one of the few programs that folks on the left and the right both like for the reason you mentioned, because no matter who's in power, we can get information from those agencies. What are they doing? How publicly accountable are they being? And it's very interesting to see how administrations respond to FOIA. Um, uh, you know, the Bush administration certainly wasn't perfect, but they were far better than the Trump administration on FOIA. And actually, the Obama administration sometimes played games with FOIA, and it looks like the Biden administration isn't doing that so far. So it, you can tell a lot by an administration on how open they are to open information. Yeah, it's certainly uh, something we're losing trust in the government because of it not being accountable and it not being transparent. We, we need a trans, more transparent government. Our government is complex enough. We have millions of people employed by the government. There are just so many different agencies. It, it's so complex that anything we can do to make it more transparent is, is better for us as a, as a people. Uh, essentially, uh, people have lost trust because they feel like, oh, we can't we can't even understand what the government is doing behind closed doors. Right. So where are we going? You know, going back to something we had talked about earlier, which is the uh, the GSA changing their their rules to net zero 2050. Um, why do you think or how would you suggest the Biden administration administration change that and uh, make it a doable target? Because it seems like the 2025 target that they had stated earlier is probably not really doable. Would you agree with that? Is 2025 even doable? I think 2025 is doable in terms of uh, getting federal buildings on clean renewable energy. And it's certainly doable to start buying more electric cars. So we do have the technological means now to to immediately turn the boat around. But I hear you. I, I this will not all happen. We didn't get to where we are overnight and it won't go away overnight. But I want to go back to something you just said, because it relates to this question, which is 
despite the fact that climate change and wildlife conservation both can be complicated. Like there are some fascinating, intense, technical and scientific and sometimes esoteric things that need to be debated. We make them complex at our peril. And I think one of the things that we need to think about climate change is when when any politician, not just Joe Biden, because at least he's trying, unlike the previous president, when you use dates like 2050, like who even knows what 2050 means? I'll probably be dead. Like no one thinks in any meaningful terms about what's going to be happening in 2050, except in just abstract ways that our kids and grandkids, I hope, are OK. Right. 2050 is so long away. What I would suggest the Biden administration needs to do, and there were glimmers of it in their GSA uh, announcement a couple days after I filed my petition, is to set tangible short-term targets now and start working towards them. Don't do mitigation. Don't do net zero. Like Actually go at the problem and define and show how you're going to ramp that problem down. You could easily do that with federal buildings. There's no reason why in a couple of years, not every single federal building can have a solar panel on it, a battery next to it, and can be largely running on renewable energy. We wouldn't be at maybe 100%, but I, I, with a fraction of the money we spend with the military, we could be at 90, 95% by the end of Biden's administration. That's the type of tangible things we need to do, not these complicated webs of mitigation and banking and all the things that go into modern regulation, which frankly end up not working and making people more cynical in the long run. Well, I hear you. And I, from a management perspective, I've read a lot of books about management. And, and one of the ones that I like the best was written by a guy named John Doerr, who wrote one uh, on an OKR system, Objectives and Key Results, which he gave to a company he invested a while back in as the first major investment. It was a company you may have heard of. It's called uh, Google. And, uh, you know, it went from 40 employees when he first invested to uh, whatever, 400,000 or something. And they're still using that system. And, and what they do is they pick out three to five things every quarter that are the top line things that the organization really wants to shoot for and shoots for them. And I see that that as uh, policymakers, the, the Biden administration and, and pretty much many of their predecessor, predecessors doing the same thing, they, they spread the net so widely that they don't have focus. So what are the things that you would say are those tangible short-term targets that we can, we can uh, get some victories up on the board at the same time, going for some of the longer term things, but let's let's hit on some of the short term wins. I think that's exactly what we'll start with at the next session. Well, let's uh, let's do that. Um, you're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, and uh, we'll be right back with Bill Snape in just one minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Matter, and uh, talking to Bill Snape. And uh, Bill, why don't you uh, go back to the question I was asking just before the break about the tangible short-term targets that we can hit to uh, get some wins on the board here? Well, sort of like if I were king for a day, right? Scary thought. Right. Very few things to really, again, to not make them too complicated. Um, 
I put them in the three buckets, three major things. The first bucket is we need to have an overarching goal for where we're going with climate pollutants, with greenhouse pollutants. How low do we want to get? What is the goal? And we pick the goal and go for it. And that's the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, the NACs under the Clean Air Act. The Clean Air Act already allows us to do that. The president should start that process immediately. It's tangible. It would be the blueprint and by, under which everything would, would, would work and fall under. So that's, that's bucket number one. Bucket number two is, and this has begun to happen with the infrastructure bill, we need to incentivize, further incentivize clean renewable energy. And by clean renewable energy, I don't mean nuclear. I don't mean biomass. I mean mostly solar and wind energy, sometimes geothermal, sometimes hydro, with a healthy dose of batteries, and begin to, as the first infrastructure bill did, give people not only tax credits, but actual payments for buying these things. And in fact, you know, one of the long forgotten opening lines of Hillary Clinton's first debate with Donald Trump, and she didn't say it again afterwards, she wanted to put a solar panel on everyone's house. And it seems kitschy and it seems silly, but you know what? That would actually go a long way if we could find a way to do that, at least the houses, of course, that get sun. Um, and then, of course, electric cars. We have the capacity, if anything, that arrogant Elon Musk has told us and showed us is that it's all doable. We can have, uh, uh, and I like Elon, all right, he just sometimes gets, he's a little hypocritical with his view of the economy, but he has shown us and others have seen it. We have the technology for clean electric cars now that are, that are fueled by clean renewable energy. The federal government could start buying those cars tomorrow. And, and that's something very tangible. Solar panels, clean uh, electric cars uh, that they could invest in, and I think are beginning to, but could do so more starting tomorrow. And then lastly, we really do need more resources. The second infrastructure bill that the House of Representatives has already passed, it's called the Build Back Better bill. It passed with an overwhelming majority. This is the bill that Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Kristen Sinema from Arizona seem to be holding up right now. That bill needs to pass. That bill would give a lot of resources to help particularly marginalized communities for which this transition could hurt the most get into and enjoy a clean, renewable future. So those would be the three things that could be. And we're on the press. I mean, Congress doesn't agree much. And here we are really close to them passing the second major infrastructure bill of the year that could revolutionize how it is we use energy in this country. I mean, it's it's worth fighting about. And we're, as I said, very close. Let's start with the first one as, as far as the overarching goal of the Clean Air Act and uh, changing the standards there. What uh, type of work does the Biden administration new, need to do to set that one up to get it to, to get it going? They need to have a proposed rule that is published in the Federal Register for which they invite public comment and have public hearings from every single sector of society, including the fossil fuel industries. And after a period of time after that proposed rule where they take comment in and, and, and come out with some final proposal, um, it, it is administrative law 101. It is something that if they started in January of 2022, they could easily complete by the end of 2024. But they, it would have to be a priority. And that would be mostly out of EPA. I guess the question is, are you seeing any rumblings because you're kind of close to the ground zero of uh, Washington, D.C. as to the Biden administration actually doing that? 
Um, they seem to be a little bit uh, still cleaning up the Trump administration message. The Trump administration did a lot of weird legal things to EPA. And so they're trying to backtrack on settlements that the Trump EPA entered into, enforcement decrees that the Trump administration entered that are all bad. But I think now that this year is up, they even, for instance, there's a clean power, there's a clean air act case before the Supreme Court that the Biden administration could get rid of tomorrow if they just withdrew this old Obama rule. But they they're they are not moving fast right now. And I'm I'm hoping that this holiday break this December will allow them to hit the ground running in January. It 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 is a little disappointing not to see more out of the out of the Biden EPA so far. So uh what kind of uh kind of uh pressure or uh communications can people have uh to the Biden administration to get them moving on that front? What kind of communications are you having with uh, Biden administration officials to to get them moving on that front? Well, we have an outstanding petition on the NACs, on the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. The Biden administration is aware of that petition. Um, I would say we need grassroots and grass tops pressure to tell the Biden administration to treat greenhouse pollutants just like we did lead, just like we did smog, just like we did acid rain, like to make it a priority, set a standard and get us below the the, the polluting threshold. And um, it's simple, but the, the problem is that it would actually make the polluters stop polluting, which is why big industry is complaining about it. So well, it's the most it's the most elegant way to do this is you have to set standards. I mean, if you don't have a standard, it's hard to meet it. And uh, it's hard for us to direct the economy if you don't have a, a set standard. So I think it's it's the kind of thing that directs economic uh, decision making. And unfortunately, if you tell big business, you you have the right to kind of pollute X amount, they're going to pollute as much as they can because they basically have no constraint and their competitors will do that. Uh, so they, it's either uh, in a dog eat dog world, they, they either pollute or they potentially lose their business to somebody else who's willing to do so. So I, I think that you kind of have to give them the guidelines because they can't do it themselves or they won't do it themselves because that's the, the nature of the free market. They just won't happen. Um, Agreed. Again, so put. going on to point number two, which is we need incentives for clean air, wind, um, you know, I, I noticed that you left out nuclear and I, I had a guest on the show recently who was talking about nuclear and. I, I quite frankly, I think they make a good some good points that nuclear is at least uh, it's a net zero type uh, power source that we could ramp up pretty quickly. And given the stakes involved, uh, why why shouldn't we be using nuclear? Hey, I'm tempted by nuclear, too, for all the reasons you just said. But there's two things about nuclear I don't have an answer for. And therefore, I I can't endorse it. And And the center has been extremely nervous about endorsing it. The first is, what do you do with the waste? Like, we still have no answer for that. And we need to have an answer for what we're doing with nuclear waste. It is, it, 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 it doesn't go away forever. It's incredibly toxic. And we still don't have an answer for that. So that's issue number one. Issue two is, and I almost led with this, but I think the nuclear waste issue speaks for itself. It still takes energy to mine uranium. So yes, once you're burning 
the, the nuclear source, but it takes a lot of energy just to get it to the point where we're using that. It just seems to me for all that money and for all the huge liability that we shield the nuclear industry from, it's the only economic activity that Congress that I'm aware of has said that if you do something really bad, you, you'll only be sued for a certain amount. That's the liability cap with the nuclear. Like, why would we want to take those risks and spend all that money when we could spend that amount of money and less and have solar, wind and battery operated energy that would operate 24 seven and be clean like it's beyond me. Now, the answer that I sometimes get is, well, we don't have enough critical minerals. But you know what? We don't know if we don't have enough critical minerals because we've never identified what our renewable energy target is and what the renewable, what the critical minerals would be that we need to get there. I agree that if every single human being on the earth, 8 billion of us or so, had a, uh, a, a phone and a lithium car, that we would maybe start to you know, be close to not having enough critical resources and minerals. But we're nowhere near that point yet. No one's saying that we don't have enough critical minerals now. We're saying that out in the future, we could see that that could be an issue, just the same we can see that oil will not be there forever. So I, I just see no reason to invest in something like nuclear power that has clear environmental drawbacks, has harmed people dramatically in the past, and we don't use a technology that's already proven, clean, cheap, and all it needs is a mass mobilization. To me, it's, it's a no-brainer to go in the solar wind battery direction. Well, I, I, uh, I'd probably push back on that, but we have an issue as far as time. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think there are some, uh, some arguments to be made there. But uh, I'm, I'm concerned with the Build Back Better plan with the inflation that we've got uh, perking up again. If we, if we pump a bunch more money into this economy, aren't we likely to get more inflation? I mean, my undergrad degree was in economics, and that was kind of a, a Keynesian type model was that if you put too much money from the government side, eventually you're going to cook, you're going to get the inflation the economy cooking so hot that we're going to have more inflation. Well, we've never had the type of virus pandemic that we've had. So we're in very unique economic times. And no one said that when we just passed the trillion dollar defense bill. Why is it that when we spend money on warships and bombs, it's okay. But when we spend it on things that might help people tomorrow, it's not. I mean, I hear you. At some point, we have to stop spending uh, like there's no tomorrow. But we're in a crisis because of COVID. And we already spend that much on other things. Why? Like, you know, for half of the Iraqi war, we could have put a solar panel on everyone's house. Well, I, I agree with you there that we could have certainly spent that money that we spent in Iraq and Afghanistan much more effectively. And we'd be energy secure right now uh, had we had such foresight. But un unfortunately, that didn't occur. So we have to deal with the situation that exists. Uh, Bill, it's been great having you on the show and uh, a lot still probably to cover, but uh, really enjoyed it. And hopefully we'll have you back in the future to talk about maybe some wins. Maybe uh, you can get the, the Biden administration to change the Clean Air Act goals in, in the 2022 uh, coming session. So uh, good luck to you on that front. And you've been listening Thank to Unite, you. Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. And we'll... Have you back next week.
As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-FOR-YOU. That's 844-MLG-FOR-YOU or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968. 